This is Focal Point for Thursday, the 14th of January, 2010. These are our internet predictions for the year ahead. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Padney and Gihan Pereira, for this week's edition. Hello, Chris. How are you? Very well, Gihan. Thanks. How are you? Uh, I'm happy, and Happy New Year to you as well. Yes, welcome to the teenies, Gihan. The teenies. Yes, I was wondering what this decade was going to be called. There's been some debate about whether the old decade is finished or not, but I think we can safely say, yes, we have finished. 2009 was the last year of the first decade of the 21st century, and 2010 is the first year of the second. So what we're going to do is something that we've done for the last couple of years, which is to make our top 10 predictions uh, related to the internet and technology um, as it relates to society and to business. So we've got a range of predictions in these areas and uh, we've done this for the last couple of years and so Chris has got five, I've got five and we're going to, at the end of the year, we'll do a review and see how we did. And last year we did pretty well with our predictions so let's see if we're going to get it two years, two years running to be as lucky as that. Two decades running. Yes, in fact, two decades running. So there are some obvious predictions, and these are the ones that we're, we're just going to simply mention them, but they're not, they're not worth really saying, here are big predictions for the year. But there are things that have been happening, trends that have been happening, which you won't be surprised if you, if you hear that the internet population has grown, or social media is going to continue to grow, or email will continue to grow, or Facebook will continue to grow, or that we still won't have a solution to spam, or that people will continue to buy more iPhones and other sort of phones. So there's a kind of general trends and we expect them to continue. Yeah. So we'll, let's start with some predictions of that really aren't about technology itself, about, about how people are going to be using the technology. And you've got a couple, Chris, and I've got one. Why don't you start with your first one? Sure. Well, the first one relates to internet and politics. And I've given it the subtitle, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. And what I think we'll witness uh, in this year and beyond is an increasingly political dimension to the internet as governments try and grapple with regulation and censorship of the net. And in addition to that, we'll see governments and political parties and political activists using the internet uh, for service delivery. We started to see some interesting trends in the United States during 2009 in terms of opening up public service data and other information online. And we'll also see our political parties using the internet in interesting ways for campaigning, as well as political activists um, using the internet again for uh, activism. So we can all recall what happened in Iran during 2009, even though the Iranian government cracks down and censors the internet uh, very severely in that country, we still had pictures and tweets and blogs on what was going on inside Iran in spite of the government's best, uh, best efforts to suppress that. So closer to home, uh, from an Australian political perspective, and this is where I got the title, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, The Good, I refer to, is the rollout of Australia's national broadband network. So that's uh, faster, better internet for Australians. The Bad refers to the Rudd government's attempt to censor the internet. So this woolly-headedness, this wrong-headedness by the government, they seem to be persisting with this bizarre policy. And finally, The Ugly... I've labelled the campaigns that I think the political parties are going to wage on the internet later this year in Australia as a general election is due. Maybe it won't be so ugly, but the experience from the last general election was, well, at the very least you could say it was underwhelming, but some of it was pretty ugly as well. Yes, I agree. I agree. 
So my first prediction, which is our second one, is that this is one that may seem a little bit obvious at first, but I want to sharpen it a little bit. So my prediction is that there's going to be an increase in electronic meetings, things like teleseminars and webinars and conference calls and people running online conferences. And I, and I say that might be a little bit obvious because it's obviously the way that the, the trend is going. It's definitely going upwards. But I want to sharpen that and say that's going to happen at the cost of there's going to be a significant drop in face-to-face -face meetings so that people are going to, rather than just run more teleseminars or just have more online conferences, I think the meetings industry and the conference industry and to a large extent the, the hotel industry as well is going to suffer because they will be, there will be fewer conferences booked, there will be fewer meetings booked, there will be perhaps less fewer flights taken because of an increase in electronic meetings rather than face-to-face -face meetings. Okay. And I think recent events in the Northern Hemisphere are going to accelerate that trend, Gihan. The company that I work for in the, in the United, United Kingdom, due to the recent inclement weather they've had there, they had to close their main site because it was unsafe. And as a consequence, they encouraged their staff to telecommute whilst the site was shut. And today on one of the company's blogs, a posting asked staff to um, relate their, their feedback about telecommuting experiences in terms of productivity, what worked, what didn't. And thus far, the responses have been generally quite positive. So I expect this situation has been repeated many times over across the Northern Hemisphere in the past month. And as a result uh, of being forced to encourage staff to telecommute, I think that more organisations will be prepared to allow that in future and also we'll start making sure they have the infrastructure in place so that telecommuting can be as productive as possible. All right, the next point, uh, the next prediction was uh, I've titled Less Privacy or Greater Openness. And recently the Facebook founder, Mark Zuckerberg, contended that attitudes to online privacy have changed. He said people have really gotten comfortable not only sharing more information and different kinds, but more openly and with more people. Now, at the same time as uh, he suggests that that social trend has taken place, sites like Facebook and Google have improved the way in which uh, people can control the privacy of the information at those sorts of sites. So there seem to be two perhaps contradictory trends, or maybe one supports the other, maybe because we have greater, more fine-grained privacy controls, people have become more comfortable, or maybe they're independent, I'm not sure. But nevertheless, people do seem to be, I think Mark is right, I don't think he's just saying that because he has a vested interest in people doing so on his site, Facebook, but I think that I've witnessed that trend myself and I think it's one that's going to continue. And in some cases, the information people are sharing is quite embarrassing and if you need a laugh, I suggest you visit the blogs lamebook.com and failbooking.com which have some of the more amusing examples of the sorts of embarrassing things people have posted to their Facebook status or tweeted on Twitter or put up on MySpace. Um, but some of the information is, is dangerous as well. Uh, so information about when you're not going to be at, ha at your house. And I'm one of the victims. Um, in our last podcast, I broadcast to our audience of millions that I was going to be spending some time down at the family beach house over the Christmas and New Year break. So... Apparently, this sort of information uh, has been used by burglars to determine when a, a house is going to be vacant and a target for burglary. So uh, that's your fault, Kihan. You shouldn't have asked me what I was going to be doing for my holiday. It is my fault. Fortunately, you weren't a victim of burglary, <laughs> were you? Uh, well, nothing, nothing of value seems to be missing.
<laughs> but look, Chris, I think I think this is an important point because there are, you're right. So there, there are two sides to this. One is that people now have tools which allow them to expose themselves more and to share more of what they would otherwise have not been able to share. So there's some people who want to share embarrassing videos, like not, they, they could be funny videos, not necessarily really embarrassing, but they want to share them with the world and there was no outlet to do that, there was no vehicle for doing that. But equally the other side of it is that I think this is the bigger problem, that most people are unaware of just how much of themselves is visible in the world uh, and especially with things like Google now starting things like real-time search so you tweet something it appears on Google pretty much immediately and those sort of things are very hard to to delete once you create that little impression on the internet it's very hard to get rid of it so you just have to be more aware of it and most people aren't even aware that it's happening behind their back yeah so I, I think the example I cited where I inadvertently put out some potentially dangerous information I think you've used the analogy that the internet's like an amplifier or a megaphone. So in the past, telling a few people that uh, you might be away from home for Christmas wasn't a dangerous thing. But now with things like the internet podcasts, social networking websites, that information is broadcast. And so people, you can be careless and uh, that carelessness can have uh, severe repercussions, let's say. Yes, it certainly can. Yeah. Certainly can. Okay, so let's move on to the, the next area. So we talked about people using the technology. Here's a trend that um, I predicted this at the start of last year, and it wasn't really, to be honest, a very difficult prediction, that we would be going increasingly mobile. And to some extent, I had no idea just how much we would be. Uh, but now, mobile technology has really advanced in leaps and bounds, and people have started using it as well. And Apple deserves a lot of credit for this with the launch of their iPhone, which for ordinary people is a fairly easy device to use. I personally don't like it, and I'm getting to like it even less the more I use it. However, it has meant that ordinary people now have access to a mobile device, whereas in the past they would have to have to buy some sort of pocket PC or netbook, which is which looks more like a computer than a phone. So I think there's things that are going to happen as a result of us having a greater mobile access and mobile technology. And the, the first one that I want to talk about is an increase in what I see as localization. So people will have their phone and there will be more facilities available to them based on where they physically are. So you already have, like on my iPhone, I have GPS, so I can, I don't need a street directory anymore in my car, and if I'm walking around, I don't really need to look up directions beforehand because I've got Google Maps on my iPhone. But there will be other things as well, like you might be walking past a restaurant, and if you've subscribed to that restaurant's app, then they might immediately just send you an SMS message saying, Here's, uh, here are the specials for this week. Um, or you might be uploading a photograph and it's automatically tagged with the location where you took the photograph. Or you have a group of friends and you agree that you're going to share each other's location. So if I'm at a cafe somewhere, Chris, and you're close by and you decide that if we do want to meet, we can actually realize that without us even having to uh, coordinate that beforehand. So a lot of those things that are related to localization, so where the user actually is, um, I think there's going to be an increase in that sort of uh, technology and the applications that go along with that. Okay. Well, mine follows on from your prediction, Gihan, uh, when you mentioned that example of a restaurant letting you know the specials of the day. So I think there's going to be more of those kinds of smart mobile applications now that we have healthy numbers of smartphones available. So we've, of course, got to 
a large number of iPhones out there and we're starting to see more and more Android handsets being released. And then there are other offerings from Symbian and Linux-based smartphones as well. So we have these powerful mobile platforms and we've seen some really smart businesses making use of the idea of having apps for the iPhone and now with the with uh, Android apps, apps, the Android platform reaching maturity, I'm starting to see offerings for the Android platform as well, so mobile apps for Android. So yes, so we're going to see more of these, more businesses offering smart mobile apps that uh, link them to their customers and attract new customers as well. Okay, so both you and I, Chris, have mentioned the iPhone and the, the growth of the iPhone and how this helped people. Uh, so my next prediction is I predict that the growth of Google phones will exceed the growth of the iPhones. Um, and in a way, this is a bit more of a wish than a prediction because... I've had my iPhone for maybe about six months now. Initially, it was really great to have a smartphone at all, but I find the iPhone quite annoying, and there are lots of things on there that are very, very difficult to use and, and really annoying to use. And it's not necessarily Apple's fault that they didn't create a perfect uh, a perfect device and perfect software for it right away, but it is Apple's fault that they're keeping the the whole platform very closed, very protective. Um, they don't allow open software development on it. They've got very strict rules about what you can develop. And that creates a lot of restrictions that are very annoying for users. And the, the more that I use it, the more problems I have with it. So I know that some people, when anyone starts criticizing Apple, they immediately start criticizing Microsoft in turn. And I'm certainly not a Microsoft fan necessarily. Um, however, the, the good thing about, say, a Microsoft platform like Windows is that if you don't like the Microsoft software, somebody you can probably get some software created by somebody else. So if you don't like Microsoft Word, you can find some other equivalent. If you don't like Microsoft Internet Explorer, you can get open source browsers like Firefox. With the iPhone application, with the iPhone software platform, you can't do that. Uh, Apple will first of all deliberately prohibit certain types of software, and even the software they allow has to go through their complicated and convoluted and, and slow approval process. So I'm really hoping that there's going to be the more open option available, and that's really going to come from Google. So whether it's Google's operating system Android, which is running on somebody else's phone, or Google has just launched their own phone, which is not available in Australia yet, but the own, the, your own Google phone might be available soon. And it certainly will start off as a second runner because it certainly hasn't got the number of apps that the iPhone has. However, it'll be much easier to create apps for the Google phone. Uh, you won't have to go through a complicated process. You won't have to have it approved by Google to run on the phone. And so it'll be just like downloading software for your PC or your Mac. You can download it from anywhere on the internet rather than just from this tiny little silo that Apple has created and you can, if you don't want it from there, you have to hack your phone to break into it and even then there are certain things that Apple won't let you do. That's a bold prediction, Gihana. I know you said you hope it's, it's more of a wish than a, generally a prediction so it'll be interesting to see what does happen. The other thing that might happen is that out of left field we have other smaller contenders on the smartphone market that are based on Linux. So during the holiday I took away with me a Linux-based um, Nokia device. It, uh, it isn't internet-enabled, but it does. if you're in a, in a Wi-Fi hotspot, then you do have access to the internet, but it doesn't have th uh, 3G on it. But Nokia have got a successor to that, the N900, I think it's called, which does have 3G. So I wonder, 
wonder whether the problems that you cited uh, with the iPhone might be overcome with uh, Linux-based operating systems, uh, because there are a lot of developers whinging about the Android platform as well. So let's see what happens. Maybe something will happen from left field. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you, Chris. That that's an that is an interesting left field option. Uh, I wouldn't go as far as to predict that, but it's certainly an option. And it's, this is not so much about Apple versus Google, but it's again the topic that we talked about in the previous podcast. It's about open versus closed, and uh, it seems that the Google phone has already a sorry. Google phone, when I say that, I mean Android as well, has already been quite popular and it's, it is growing. It is growing quite fast and my prediction may not necessarily apply to Australia because we may not even have the Google phone or widespread adoption of an Android-based provider in Australia anytime soon. But I think worldwide that we will see much more Google-based phones than iPhones, sorry, in terms of growth. Yeah, watch this space. We'll revisit this at the end of 2010 and let you know who was right. Oh, we will. We will. Okay, so another thing that we've covered in, in the last year has been talking about businesses and even whole industries struggling to come to terms with some of the things that have been happening in the internet economy and with Web 2.0. So we've each got a prediction in this area. Uh, why don't you go first, Chris? Sure. I've titled this next prediction News Media 2.0. And uh, previously... On Focal Point, you would have heard our podcast entitled News Media versus New Media, where we talked about the Annus Horribilis, that uh, the old media, uh, new media, that is. <laughs> when I say old media, old media, I mean print, news media, and broadcast TV, for example. They had a pretty horrible year as uh, their revenues from print advertising went through the floor. But I think we're going to see a recovery of that for online news media as the old news media starts to get Web 2.0. Uh, one of the first things that's going to happen is that we've already seen a rebound in online advertising revenues. So that's going to uh, improve their bottom line. But there's also the opportunities available to news media for them to better exploit the free business model. So at the moment, what, you, what happens is that you go to a news website and there's plenty of advertising there and the content is free, but it's not the smartest option. There's also the possibility of the freemium business model that we talked about in another podcast during 2009 that uh, adds premium content to people who subscribe to that particular news service. And there's also the idea of encouraging easy syndication of news content by things like web feeds, rather than trying to lock it away, making sure that uh, spiders can't web search, spiders can't index it, the search engines can't find it, and that essentially prevents people from finding and reading the website, the news content on other websites, because that eventually drives traffic to the, the news website. And finally, there's uh, the social networking phenomenon. There's the obvious um, opportunity to use existing social networking websites that are quite popular like Facebook and Twitter to drive traffic to news websites, as well as making news websites social networking and collaborative websites themselves. So by encouraging readers to comment, by hosting web forums, to adding things like a wiki-style generation of content and editing of that content as well. So a lot of Web 2.0's uh, Web 2.0 opportunities available to news media, and I think that's the sort of thing that can help them to flourish uh, starting in 2010 and beyond. 
I think the interesting challenge for the news media, Chris, is that they're completely changing their business model. So we've talked about things like freemium or offering a, doing a lot on Web 2.0 by delivering high-value content so you can then sell things later. With the news media, what we're talking about is take, completely turning their business model around where they were previously charging for content which now they may not be able to charge for at all. And maybe it's like the, like the music industry where a, an artist or a band might find that they give away their music free so that people can download and share, and then they make it up on concert ticket sales and T-shirt sales. So it's a real shift in thinking if you're going to, if you're going to go that way. And some of those musicians and artists and record companies have realized that actually does work for them. However, it is a fairly radical way of thinking, isn't it? If you say everything that I've previously been charging for I now make free and I have to start running almost another business. Yeah, it's particularly disruptive, but they've gotten to such a low point that I think that they need to start thinking about and trying those sorts of things because otherwise the, the trend that they experienced during, during 2009 is going to continue and they, and they won't be viable. So in this new free uh, business model world that the internet has brought about, I think that they're the sorts of things they need to explore. Great, great. So my, my next prediction, which is also about businesses struggling to come to terms with the internet economy, is slightly different because we're not talking necessarily about businesses that have been directly affected by the internet economy, but businesses trying to figure out how to make use of things that many people around the world are using uh, free, and businesses now want to tap into that as well. And the two in, two in particular that I'd like to mention are Twitter and Facebook. So my prediction is that smart businesses will figure out how to make use of Twitter and Facebook. And we can certainly, I think we'd all agree that 2009 was Twitter's biggest year when it actually became mainstream. But I think it's a little bit like the dot-com boom where everybody got on board but nobody could figure out how to make any money from it. Um, and indeed with something like Twitter, how you don't, don't simply waste all your time. But I reckon 2010 is going to be the year that Twitter is going to go mainstream in the business world. Not that it, Twitter itself will, but the businesses will figure out how to use Twitter to make money. And there are ways to do it. Not many people are doing it, but some people are. So let me just give you a couple of examples. We mentioned in a previous podcast, Yvonne Adele, a colleague of mine, who has who's using Twitter as an outsourcing tool for ideas, where a client sends her an idea, she sends it out to her Twitter arm, and they come back with um, ideas to solve the client's problem and they get paid that way. So that's a very clever way of doing it. It's not something that every business will be able to do, but that is one clever, innovative way of using Twitter. Uh, many, many organizations such as airline companies and even hotels now are offering last-minute ticket prices or, or accommodation deals via Twitter. So you have to follow them, and if you don't, you don't get these special last-minute discounts. And that also means that they can advertise to their Twitter followers at other times as well. And it's all done through permission, and so everybody's happy. Um, and again, it's not just airlines, but it's also other retailers who are offering special Twitter-only discounts or coupons or offers. Um, and the other thing that companies can do, businesses can do, is just monitor. They use Twitter to see whenever their name gets mentioned and then use that as a customer service tool. Now, Telstra tried doing this but didn't do it very well because they had somebody monitoring their Twitter stream for the word Telstra. And when that happened, when somebody mentioned Telstra, and usually was a complaint about Telstra, that person monitoring it would write to that person saying, I noticed you 
this is in 140 characters, so let me give you the long version. You write to them and say, I noticed you had a complaint about Telstra. We'd like to help you, and we're here to do all the great customer service for you. But the reason they, they mess it up by saying, okay, now go to, now call our call center. <laughs> and if you've ever used a Telstra call center, you realize that it's one of the most painful things on earth. Um, so they really mess it up. They, they tried to get on board with the tool, but they really mess it up that way. However, that's not to say that every organization has to work that way. There are others who are smart and nimble and agile and actually care about their customers who can actually make use of Twitter to monitor what people are saying about them and, um, and preserve their online reputation and just help customers who are having problems. Yeah, not an honest attempt by Telstra to, to really service their customers, just a, an attempt to band-aid their online reputation. Yes, Okay, our last two predictions don't fit into any neat categories. They're just a couple of random ones. So here goes. Mine is the pervasive internet, which I've subtitled The Internet Fridge Comes of Age. And when I think of the internet fridge, uh, I see it as an icon of the dot-com bubble and the subsequent tech wreck. The idea was that you'd have this fridge that would monitor its contents, and when you were running low on something uh, like uh, cheese, it would automatically order some from an online grocer. Now, I'm, I wouldn't be comfortable with that because I don't know that my fridge likes the same kind of cheese as me, but that was the vision. Um, it never eventuated, of course, um, but I do know of people who had network connections built into the fridge recesses of their new homes. Um, and there are internet fridges available on the market, but they don't operate in the way I just described. They're essentially just a way of accessing the internet from your kitchen. But what I mean by the pervasive internet is that I'm seeing an increasing number of clever gadgets being launched that passively access the internet as part of their operation. So they're not a way for you and me to access the internet and go to websites and so forth, but in order to operate, these, internet, these, these gadgets use online services. They operate in the cloud. So, for example, last year we bought a PVR, a personal video recorder, or a digital video recorder, whatever you want to call them, that can use the internet to download electronic program guides. So that's got all the TV listings that are available on digital broadcast in Australia, as well as some metadata like uh, comments from, from uh, subscribers and ratings and that sort of thing. We don't actually subscribe to that service because there's a free program guide available as well with a, a little less information than the EPGs. And then I saw a thing called the Chumbi Clock Radio recently, which connects to the internet in order to keep its clock synchronised. It never loses or gains time because it uses online time servers to keep its clock uh, up to date, as well as uh, streaming content, streaming audio content from the internet. So you can uh, have podcasts played to you when the alarm goes off or uh, internet radio stations, music streaming services, whatever you like, as well as a whole lot of other um, interesting little gadgets that are available for that clock radio and and other clock radios are on the market as well, not just the Chumbi. Um, and I also saw recently uh, a couple of internet-enabled pedometers. So uh, there's the Fitbit, and Philips also has a thing called the Direct Life. So these are, are standard pedometers. They monitor your physical activity. But as well as that, they upload that to uh, an online service. So you can have a personal web page where you can actually see all these fancy charts that uh, tell you how much activity you've been doing, what times of day it was, and that sort of thing. 
And Philips have been really clever in that they have an additional service that you can subscribe to where you have an online personal trainer who will also monitor your um, physical activity via the direct life pedometer that you have and then tell you whether you're reaching particular goals, set goals for you and uh, essentially be an online personal trainer. So we're seeing more of these smart gadgets that use internet cloud services uh, being launched, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. And that's, uh, those are quite clever, aren't they, Chris? Because you're, you're actually tapping into not just the gadget itself, but as you say, you can upload it to the cloud, and then it then becomes, it goes online, and people can make use of much more sophisticated services that are available there, including sharing and collaborating with others. So I've noticed one of my Facebook friends recently. Um, from time to time, his status update says, just ran three kilometers today, and it shows a little picture of a Google map. And I'm sure that's happened automatically because he's had one of these smart internet-connected devices that he's configured to automatically update, uh, update his Facebook status whenever he completes a run. Yeah, and it, it, that, that's, that's very clever. And I just like the way that they use the internet as part of their operation rather than just being a way for humans to visit web pages and do that sort of thing. It's, it's really clever. It is. Great. So my final prediction, and again, as you said, Chris, this is kind of random, unrelated to anything else we've talked about, but it's something that's been happening for the last few years, and I think it's really coming of age now, is the idea of content syndication, which is you write some material once, and then you can publish it on a number of different places, and without having to do that manually. So for example, our blog and this podcast itself uses a technology called RSS, which automatically creates a syndication channel that anybody else can pick up our feed and they can get access to our podcast when it, when whenever we publish one. So the typical way that you do it with podcasts is that in iTunes, iTunes will allow you to subscribe to a number of RSS feeds, audio feeds, and so when I plug in my iPod every day, it downloads the latest issues from all the audio feeds that I've subscribed to. Um, but similarly, you can now take your RSS feed and, and plug it into different places. So if you're part of communities like Facebook and Ning, you can tell it to automatically show your most recent blog posts. Uh, if you're part of other type of online communities or even on your website, you can show your most, most recent blog posts or anybody's most recent blog posts or anybody's Twitter feeds. Uh, Google, in fact, is now showing the Twitter results first. So if, you, if I type in, say, Gihan Pereira Twitter, it will show my most recent tweets uh, right at the top of the page. Uh, and that's a great tool, and this is part of the real-time searching that Google has brought in, that it doesn't, you don't have to wait months now until Google goes around the Internet and finds your updated web pages anymore. The latest things that you're saying are available online almost instantly, and part of the way this is done is through content syndication. So you write it once, but it appears in myriad other places yeah, web feeds are a powerful technology, and uh, we spoke about uh, them a couple of years ago, I think, on a Focal Point podcast. So, yeah, for more good stuff, make sure you subscribe to the web feed for Focal Point. Well, we'll have another podcast in a couple of weeks' time, so I'll speak to you then, Gihan. Thanks, Chris, and all the best for 2010. Thank you. You too. And to all our listeners, bye for now. You've been listening to the Focal Point podcast. You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A dot com. Subscribe to the podcast. 
listen to all our past issues, or leave us your comments and questions. We look forward to having you back next time.